God's peace. Welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Nicholas Candle of the New York Mills Apostolic Lutheran Church. And in this episode, I'm joined by Pastor Jay Widener of the Lorium Apostolic Lutheran Church and Jamin Holmgren from Vancouver, Washington. In this episode, we're talking about Luther's small catechism, finishing up the series. You'll notice when listening that this was actually not recorded this month, but in early September. So I apologize for the delay. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Hey, Jamin and Jay, welcome. How are you guys today? Well, thank you. Yeah, doing well. Nice to be back, Nick. Yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a hiatus with Jamin being, uh, you know, schedule's not quite working out, but it's just wonderful to have a reunion. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> So what's what's new with you lately, Jay? Anything exciting happening in your life? I know you tried to retire, but that didn't really work out. Yeah, that didn't happen. Um, still like to see that happen, but we'll see <laughs> what, how that goes. Um, you know, I mean, we're getting ready for a new semester. So that starts next week. So that, that's been occupying a great deal of my recent time. Um, so that, that's about the biggest thing that's going on okay so what was that um retirement story how it didn't work out what happened there uh you know i wanted to retire from the church and just get to the point of just doing the seminary and uh just they weren't able to really find somebody that could fit kind of the program that they had there um in lorium so uh what they came up with is what i'm my major concern was the time constraints and I'm not getting any younger. So um, they, what they opted to do is to form really a visitation committee and they basically took over all of my visitation work. So I don't have to do that during the week. Oh, okay. That was a big issue for me. So I just, I feel very strongly about that when I felt that I couldn't physically do that much anymore largely because of my back too and the arthritis um they kind of took that over so then it made it possible for me to stay well that's cool yeah that's very nice what classes are you most excited to teach this semester is there one that you're just really loving the topic and you're getting back into it and you're ready to go with it well you know how i am i love them all i love i love everything that i teach and i did revamp the entire greek course so it, that's that. kind of interesting. I did it out of a, you know, I still use belts, but I have a, a different uh, book that I use alongside that. That's called Paulus. It was done by a Christopher Rico from Israel, where he teaches Greek as a living language. So it's it's very fascinating. He does it in a very very different format. So right now I've been reading. Uh, he did a translation of Hansel and Gretel in, uh, in to ancient Greek. So I've been reading that and that that's kind of interesting too, but it teaches you to, to apply the rules of ancient Greek into like a modern type of setting. And I think it really oh. reinforces the grammar a lot more. So they're going to use his, he has a book called Paulus, which is his first, um, it's like a entry level into using Greek as a living language. So I'm going to use that alongside Velts 
So it'll it'll be very interesting, I think. Oh, fascinating. What about uh, you've been able to take the Torino out at all this summer? Torino's long gone, brother. It's gone? What? I haven't had that thing for probably six, seven years, probably. Really? And you just yeah, I wasn't driving coming. it anymore. I wasn't driving it anymore, and I couldn't see just letting it sit and go to seed. So yeah. there was a guy that was really interested in buying it, so he bought it. So he's got it. I see it around here every now and again. But oh, that's cool. There's yeah, it was fine. There's a guy in our church who has like a. Now I feel bad that I, he's going to be mad if he listens to this. I'm going to be in trouble because I don't. I should know, but he has like a Model A or a Model T that he drives around. Really, that's really cool. It might be a little later of the models, like it might not, but it looks like that car. I don't. I don't know for sure. Oh, but okay. He brings it to Bible study every Wednesday. Oh, that's and nice. He, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it sounds just the way it sounds. It's like it's just really interesting. That's a like, unique sound. It's it's no not like it. you would expect a no a car not like an automobile. Car. Yeah, yeah. Sounds more like a, a a lawnmower that's not quite running right. Yeah. Um, Jamin, how about you? How's how's your life going? What's new with you lately? Things have been going well. Uh, kids are going back to school now so and we actually we have four kids and all four are well there's one in elementary one in middle school and then uh two in high school a senior and a freshman so that's uh that's definitely keeping us busy um my wife is actually in minnesota right now so uh so i'm i'm running the running the house and and doing everything else oh wow that's at the same time so should i should i call her here do you want to see her <laughs> I mean, I'm probably like if she's here, then probably she's here. Yeah, she's probably just right down the road. I could. It's probably I could, true. I could. Yeah. Uh, I could have. I think she's in Minneapolis here. right now. So oh, okay, uh, so that's a few hours but, away. But yeah, I was gonna yeah. say we could get her on the call. Yeah, if you wanted to say hi. Uh, and then uh, then Kyra and I are gonna be going to London next month, which will be fun. We uh, there's a there's a conference there that I'm gonna be giving a talk at. So we're gonna. Um, we're going to be there during the conference and then spend another week there a little over a week uh, touring around the UK a bit. So oh, that'll, nice. be, that'll be neat. That's nice. Yeah. Are you going to, um, what, what sites are you most excited to see there? You know, I'm kind of letting Kyra uh, handle a lot of the, the, the travel planning, but uh, I think we're going to try to try to get up to Scotland and we're going to try to, you know, maybe just travel around a bit, not, not kind of stay in one place too, too long. You're going to go, you're going to go up North to the homeland uh yeah i guess so <laughs> no i definitely not gonna be making it probably outside of the uk it'll probably just be isn't scott way. isn't uh isn't scott wait with brexit where did there was that whole uk shift thing right like, where like northern ireland isn't part of the uk anymore uh i think northern or ireland, was that just, is, ireland itself there's some weirdness around that yeah yeah but, Okay, yeah. so just don't just don't make it so that you go through a door and can't get back in. <laughs> we'll we'll try. We'll try. All right. That would be tragic. So Jay, you mentioned the Greek book that you're reading, but is there anything else you've been reading lately? Any books or um theological books or non-theological ones? Well, actually I still read the quantum physics stuff. Uh, quantum strangeness is a book I really like by Greenstein. That that's that's that fascinates me to know him. Um, he, he does a wonderful job of, of talking about how he learned all the formulas for quantum physics 
and he woke up one day and realized he didn't know anything about it. And I, I think uh, that's quite fabulous. And he, and he talks about the nature of physical reality and not even being know, knowing how to define it anymore. Um, so it's fascinating. And then Zetting, Zetting did that book on a quantum case for God, which is a really good book. I, I revisit that every now and again too. Um, although I disagree with him, God is not light. I think obviously he's not a theologian. Right. As you would know, you don't place God within the created order. Um, but uh, outside of that, for the most part, what he talks about there is, is pretty good. Uh, I like the idea of, of he talks about like if if we we if you were looking at a two dimensional universe and you had a three dimensional figure enter into the two dimensional universe, well, what would what would the two dimensional people think of that three dimensional person? They wouldn't be able to see anything except what was flat yeah and, he, and he, he associates that with god in the sense of string theory that god you know in string theory or m theory you have 10 dimensions but actually if you come to the point of dealing with god god is infinitely dimensional so what happens when god if god ever entered the universe in the sense of of manifesting himself we wouldn't be able to see or understand the great bulk of what he does. So in the incarnation, Jesus enters, but he appears in the fullness of flesh, you know, because that's the only way God could be perceived. He, we wouldn't recognize him in any other way. So it, it's very, very interesting. It, it's just fascinating sort of stuff, you know, and yeah. it, it, it really gives you an insight into what we talk about in terms of like a contrast between Aristotelian metaphysics and, and quantum reality, because Aristotle fails horribly, but almost all of our gear, we're almost totally geared towards the Aristotelian view of things. And um, so it's interesting when you start to contrast the two and you find that the quantum reality I think, in my opinion, is much closer to the scripture. You know, it's giving a much much better description according to the scripture. So which we'll there, get into talking about the Lord's Supper too. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. I, in fact, I think I watched by that that description of the three dimensional figure entering into a two dimensional universe. I feel like I've seen something on that a YouTube video. It could um, be where some guy Getting does a lot of stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I and it was really what I remember. I think I even shared it with Jamin in our Facebook discussion at the time, like five years ago or something. Yeah, um, I can't remember, yeah, I remember much that. about it at all, but you're just tickling the back of my memory. But mm -hmm. anyway, with um, with this, is there a way for um, to easily define um, for those who might not understand the term Aristotelian metaphysics to just boil that down into a, a couple of sentences? Um, you would see it in sensory perception, essentially that, that things are the way they appear to you. So you would have the sense of substance. How do you, how do you gauge something like substance? You would have go to empirical type of understanding. You would say that this table is solid. So if you put your hand on the table, you would say the table is solid, but you realize it isn't. It's 99.5% space. 
And so the only reason it feels solid to you is because of essentially the way that the atoms are constructed and at the subatomic level, what binds them together. And that makes it feel solid, but it's not. But you can't pass your hand through it either because you are solid. So in that same sort of way, you look at it that way and that's how you experience. And that's what Aristotle would tell you. Well, your senses are really the key to this. But when you get into the quantum universe, then you find out that your senses don't really matter because nothing like that really makes any sense. It doesn't, there is no such thing as like, we talk about like in the Trinity, we talk about substance and things like that. But in the quantum universe, you substantia doesn't have any sense to it really. Um, so... Hmm. You, you move beyond all of those categories by which we have defined reality. Um, and it's very, it's very interesting because, like I say, I think it's much more consistent with the scripture. Because even when you start out with Genesis 1, it's kind of fascinating how there's a heaven and an earth, but they, are, they have no shape. Literally what it says, they have no shape and they're invisible. Well, where is it then? Well, it's in the mind of God. There's a non-locality there. That, that this exists in the mind of God, but it has no substance to it. It has no, no thing that we would look at and say, well, it has a shape or, it, or it's visible. So it's very interesting that where was the universe? In other words, it was in the mind of God. And by the word, he brought it into being. So the word is the agent for all of this, like you see in, in the first chapter of John. And like I say, I think it's just more consistent. It, it's that view of, of physical reality, so to speak, is, is I think much more consistent with the biblical presentation as opposed to how we have developed physics out of Aristotle and neoplatonist ideas and things like that and even newton yeah that's fascinating we got to do a pod i think last time i had you on you mentioned some of this and we were like we got to do an episode just on this sometime it is fascinating i think i was it on that really one too is. yeah and we, i would love to do that yeah it, it's it's very interesting yeah i was reading something um this probably a while ago because now I'm struggling to remember all about it. But they did an experiment where they took a, they had these two particles that were at one point together and then they separated them and they yeah. took one up to space and spun it in space. Yeah. And or it's like, is what is that quantum entanglement or something? Yeah. Yeah. Where they spun it in space and then it started spinning down the, the other particle. Well, it's angular momentum. And actually what happens is that the angular momentum, if you, if you diddle with the angular momentum, of one of the particles, then the other particle adjusts to that angular momentum shift because they have to add up to one. Yeah, that's so, just almost beyond my mind. And that's the whole point. It is totally beyond our mind. And it, but it brings us closer to the understanding of why God says that his ways are not our ways and, and his thoughts are not ours. You know, we can't really appreciate the fullness of who God really is. We, we only have a very small window to that. Yeah. What about any fun books or books 
books that not I shouldn't say fun books, fun books that I would think were fun. I know um, you think that's fun. Any, <laughs> yeah, any, you have any to other, like, that with Jay. You know, anything like, <laughs> have you been reading like Three Blind Mice or anything? <laughs> um, For your level. No, but I, like I say, I've been reading some of this stuff in, in Greek. That's kind of interesting, you know, Hansel where they translated some of that stuff. I did a while ago read uh, Winnie Illepua, which is Winnie yeah. the Pooh in Latin. That, that's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow. That, is interesting. that almost sounds Finnish. Yeah. <laughs> Winnie <laughs> la Pula. Yeah. Where you had, uh, um, there was a guy who wrote a book called The Pooh Perplex. That's very <laughs> interesting, where he, he applied all these modern methods of literary uh, analysis to, uh, to Winnie the Pooh. And he came up with, you know, this certain group, they'd say that, well, Winnie the Pooh is really all about me and he hates me. And he talked about <laughs> all this stuff, how these literary people go off on all these tangents, you know, in relationship to that stuff. So that was pretty hilarious, you know. But I guess I don't really read like what you're not most reading your fun books. Yeah. You, um, well, when I helped you, uh, when I helped you move, you know, shameless plug. Fit, mm -hmm. Ten years ago, I helped Jay move. You had a yeah. ton of Civil War books. Still are you still, oh yeah. Are you still super interested in that? I still am very interested in the Civil War stuff. Yeah, because I think that it's fascinating in terms of how people are trying to rewrite the history. Oh yeah, Jamin, so, you're kind of a Civil War buff too, right? I I I, I would uh, consider myself more like a, a general American military history buff i like all of that uh not specifically civil war i was probably more drawn to world war ii and world war one but yeah i definitely there's there's some pieces of civil war history that are very interesting to me all right so should we play a little game here real quick <laughs> okay <laughs> no no i'm gonna ask you guys each one question and um we'll, we'll see who gets it right who um let me see if i know anything about the civil war the problem with trying to play a civil war game i gotta know something to ask the question <laughs> um who won who were the who are the generals who who are the commanders of the of both sides at the battle of antietam i'm That's not gonna McClellan. be able to know that McClellan one. was in the union and um i've heard of mcclellan that was uh Lee was Lee was at Antietam, and who and who won the battle? Uh, technically speaking, it was a draw. Um, mm. McClellan McClellan should have won the battle, but he did not commit the troops that he had, and then he tried to take what they called Burnside's Bridge. The third part of the battle was at a place called Burnside's Bridge, and the Confederates mocked McClellan for trying to take the bridge. He said, because you could wade across the stream at any point. The people <laughs> that lived there said, you could wade across the stream easily. But they kept on, he spent most of the day trying to send his guys to take, to take that bridge. And, and they got slaughtered. Wow. So they could have easily taken that bridge. And at that point, that was before the Texans showed up. And I can't think of that guy's name, the general, that he brought a bunch of Texans up. They had marched all day 
from over in Harper's Ferry. And they came up and they hit the union at that point. And he ran them up there, basically. And they, they got there and they, they, they caused them to fight to a standstill. Mm. That's awesome. That's, that's an amazing battlefield. I have walked every inch of that battlefield. That <laughs> thing is just stunning. It, it's 12 square miles, but it is just, it's a, and the people, the rangers there and that, they do such a good job with that place. It is wonderful. It's a, it, that's, a, that's well worth a visit if, if you go. Well, Jay, I'm going to declare you the winner. Easily, yeah. <laughs> my, my only hope was to uh, get some help so I could turn it into a draw, but I didn't get any help from you, Nick. So, uh... <laughs> my answer would have been uh, that they both lost because in in war nobody wins. <laughs> That's true. That is very true because it was a slaughter. Yeah, they lost so many much manpower in yeah. that battle. It was that's the worst day of casualties in warfare in United States history. Mm. I, I don't think I was aware of that. Yeah, they said that stream ran with blood for like weeks after that because it took them forever to get all the wounded in and everything like that. It was just awful, 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 awful. So, what about you, Jamin? You read any reading anything interesting? So, uh probably not surprising i do have usually have a business book that i'm you know working through the one i just started is called good strategy bad strategy the difference and why it matters by richard rumelt and it's a really good book it was highly recommended um and i've i've really enjoyed it it's been it's been really solid uh but i've i'm only about i don't 10 percent of the way through it right now um, but so far i've already gotten some some good value out of it uh, the, so what's good strategy I'm still kind of getting to that, uh, but it, really what I think it comes down to is good strategy. A lot of times people call things strategy that are really just goals. They're not really strategy. Oh. Strategy is much more tangible than that. It's actually a plan too. Um, and, and so once you kind of hear that, like, oh, we have a strategy. Here's our strategy. We want to do this. <laughs> it's like, that's not a strategy. You, you need an yeah. actual like, you know, an actual thing where you look at it and you say, okay, this is how we're going to do that. And then you execute on it. And sometimes like strategy, good strategy often is kind of like so obvious. It almost seems wrong, you know, like, uh, like commit your troops, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's too, it's too obvious. Uh, but in this case you win because you, over, you have numerical superiority, I guess, bringing it back to the Antietam thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, or like, we're going to take that bridge. Yeah. Right. That's a goal. That's a goal. It's not a strategy. It's a bad goal yeah. and bad strategy. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that's part of it, but yeah, I'm still underway on that. Um, I'm pretty far. I'm all caught up actually. I think, uh, there's new, new books coming out, but I think nine books into the cradle series and Nick, I think you've read that too, right? Oh yeah. I just yeah. finished that. Or yeah. I just got caught up to that too. Yeah. Wonderful. It's, one thing that's really, so really fun. I started it and it's a, it's a fantasy book, um, fantasy series. And I started it and I initially thought, and I'm not going to like give me a spoiler or anything, but I initially thought this is kind of video game ish. It's sort of like level up, level up type things. But then I realized that I was sort of part of the appeal of it. Like that you just kind of accept that that's, that's what's happening. Yeah. And then it's just fun. It's just a fun read. Yeah, the progression is really fun. So one thing that I thought was interesting to tie back to theology a little bit 
is that they have a concept and this isn't really a big spoiler or anything, but there's a concept of, of, uh, a, you know, a, a particular, you know, a person, a powerful person's will and your will, you can command by using your voice and things will kind of happen or not happen. Now it's not a perfect thing because you're not God, but it seems kind of modeled after the concept of yeah. God's will and the fact that God can proclaim something and it will happen. It's going to happen. So you can like in this series, a person can say stop and the thing, the boulder that's rolling told that toward them will have to stop. Um, it won't be able to crush them. Um, in God's, you know, with, with obviously with God, he has ultimate power. So if he says stop, it's going to stop. It doesn't matter how big it is, how fast it's going. It's going to stop. And it doesn't matter about the laws of physics either. <laughs> it's going to stop yeah. um, because his, his will is absolute. Uh, so that that is kind of an interesting thing, but it's a fun it's a fun read. It's especially if you like uh, fantasy. Uh, it's is a it's definitely a it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I'm I'm reading through a, a scriptural baptism by Doctor oh. Sarnavara. Yeah, and um, this book um, I I started looking at it when we did a podcast episode on back, baptism quite a bit ago, and um, then I picked it up again when we were doing um, confirmation, and um, this book is really it's it's kind of a funny book um i don't know if any i know you've read it jay yeah but um it's a dialogue between a guy named um john babstead and martin Childfont, and uh it's kind of um a basically a baptist and a lutheran arguing with each other about baptism and uh it's kind of entertaining yeah yeah so moving on jay the seminary um how's that going there do you i heard you have some new students yeah we do we have uh you know uh caleb maunu just moved up here so, so oh, he's cool. here now. so he's going to start in the fall um we have uh michael mattin he's he'd be associated with the esco congregation yeah no i know him real well yeah. Is he, he's he's gonna go he's gonna start doing courses online Awesome. Yeah. Praise the Lord. That's so cool. Yep. So, so what are those when, if somebody wants to take a course online, what do they have to do? Uh, just let Cheryl know, you know, you just need to go on the website and contact Cheryl and tell her. Is there a cost associated with it? No. I mean, for the credit classes. Yeah. If you want to take them for credit, then yeah, there is, there's a cost associated with them. If you're not, if you're just taking them for general interest, no. If you want to learn Greek, you can just pop in there if if you want to do greek you know that's fine <laughs> you know we, i have no problem with that you know the the like i say if you want to do it for credit that's different but yeah. outside of that like the monday night class or anything like that those are all you just sign up we ask you to make a donation if there's materials associated with it that we have to copy and stuff like that. But other than that, it's all. What 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 book are you guys studying in the Monday night class? Uh, Mark. Okay, cool. And yep. the uh, website and the... is ilseminary.org, it looks like. Yeah, I think that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the letters I-L. You're right. Or right. inner Lutheran. Yeah, so if you if there's um it does do you guys have the uh, class the class schedule posted there as well? Yeah, that's on this that's on the website. 
Okay, so if you're interested in checking out this to see what's going on in the seminary, it sounds like you can do that. Um, just you can contact Cheryl. Her email address will be on the website. I'll put a link to it in the description, and uh, maybe you might get a couple of new students to uh, teach online. That's great. So what would you say to someone who's considering seminary but thinks it's too expensive or doesn't like the location? Whenever I try to convince somebody that they should go to seminary, those are the objections that I get. It's too expensive, and I don't want to move to the UP where it's always winter and never Christmas. Uh, I guess that's my objection, but... <laughs> yeah, sounds... Can't do anything about the location, uh, The uh, but the money-wise, you know, like I always say, that's the last thing we ever worry about, so... Um, there's a lot of financial aid available to help with that, um, to offset the cost of it. Um, so that that shouldn't really be a concern at all. And of course, the other thing is that we can do lots of stuff online. You know, we, mm -hmm. we do a lot of classes online. So that's wonderful that you guys have been able to adapt with the technology. Well, we were kind of early in the game. You know, we, we don't have the big overhead of a lot of other schools or things like that. So we were able to be pretty flexible to get on in the ground floor of that and then never realized how it would take off. You know, I mean, now where for a while there during the pandemic, everybody was online. So, I mean, it, it's just it's fascinating how that has changed and developed. But we, we've started with it, you know, it's been many, many years since we've been online now. Mm -hmm. So does the, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if this question is good or not, we can edit it out or whatever, but uh, um, does the SEM have a, um, a strategy as far as um, what they're going to be doing within the next five, 10 years? Do you, you guys have any goals you're working towards or? Um, you know, you, you're, how long are you going to be able to keep doing this, Jay? I don't know. You know, I, I have no idea of that. Um, the, uh, the goal, of course, is to simply see to it that people learn the word. And that's always been the goal. The goal is to study the word. And I myself was troubled in certain of my experience with stuff where you're, you're you're studying a lot of things, but you're not really learning the word. So that was really the major, major thrust. Of course, that was Dr. Sarnivar's thrust, Pastor Ken's way, way back, you know. And they're the ones that started the seminary. Yeah, was to start with that, with, with well, we need to really be fully versed in, in what the scripture teaches and then be able to um, have pulpits filled by people that have a very strong background in what the word says. Uh, that, that was the essential purpose. And it still remains the essential strategy, you know, is to teach people how to handle the word. Does somebody need to have a college degree if they want to go to seminary? No, not anymore. We used to have a requirement more towards that. Given the state of current higher education, we don't really look at that necessarily as being all that great. So we kind of look at it, you know, if, if somebody can come in and first of all, of course, is to have a, a desire to do it. 
uh, and, and secondly is really to demonstrate uh, not even a high degree of acumen as much as uh, being able to present an attitude of where they really want to be engaged at that level, you know, of, of really investigating the scripture. And, and that, that's the major thing for me. That, that's always what I'm looking for from people is somebody that really wants to come in and say, you know, it, it's like I tell people all the time, you know, and I've done this for 30, 31 years. When you come to this point, you realize you don't really know anything. There was a time when I was younger that I did think I knew some things. And now I'm pretty convinced that I don't. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced that I don't. That I'm still at the part where I think I know some things. Yeah. When you, when you pick up the scripture and you start to go through it, and you're struck with the beauty of it and the wonder of it, and you realize it's kind of like what Greenstein talks about in Quantum Strangeness, that he realized that he knew all the formulas and he knew all the mathematics and stuff like that, but he didn't really know anything. He didn't know anything about it. And I think that that's the way it is for me with the scripture. I constantly pick it up and I'm awestruck at the fact of what I don't know, of, of new things that I see and how they, they, how I sit there and say, how, how did you not see that before? But I didn't, you know, I didn't see it. Yeah. So yeah, that, I that's of... what we really look for, you know, that's that awesome. sense of wonder, you know, and so you just need someone. So if 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 that sounds like you, if you have a desire to investigate the scriptures, go to ilseminary.org and check it out. And I know Jay is, um, and the seminary staff there are very helpful with answers to any questions you might have. So take advantage of uh, this resource, especially if it's free. I mean, how do you how do you turn down a free education? Um, I kind of I, I I understand what you're saying because I was reading. We've been going through Leviticus for our Bible study. And um, I, at first, when I was, my recollection of Leviticus, you know, having read it before was that, oh, this is going to be a weird Bible study. But it's actually been one of the most interesting Bible studies that I think I've ever done. Yeah. You know, we, we just got through um, like chapter 16, 17 and 18. And that whole thing about Yom Kippur yeah. and the priest going in once a year, when you bring that into the New Testament and what Jesus does. Yeah. Um, you know, the words um, don't consume blood because the life is in the blood would be ingrained in a Jew. And then Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Yes. Um, just fascinating stuff. And that actually kind of is a pretty good transition to our topic. The life is in the blood. And uh, um, may maybe that's how we can introduce the sacrament of the altar. Um, when, 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 God says the life is in the blood. Is it any coincidence then that Jesus offers his body and blood for us in the Lord's Supper? Right. Right. Yeah, no coincidence at all. No. So Luther, Luther begins the catechism by saying, what is, or the, this section by saying, what is the sacrament of the altar? And he answers by saying, it's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine for us Christians to eat and to drink instituted by christ himself so what does luther mean jay when he says it's the true body and blood of christ what does real. he get now means real it, it it actually is real 
it, it, so it's not just a symbol right it's not symbolic uh the greek term that we translate true or truth all face um really has more of the sense of saying it's real as opposed to what's unreal and you really come down to a point and of course you see this in first corinthians 10 where Paul is expressing this point of understanding the contrast between the Lord's Supper, literally, and the practice of the Christians and idolatry. Idolatry is unreal. That's not real. It, it's, it's fictitious. It, it's an invention of, of the human psyche. The Lord's Supper is real. That's something that's real. And, and that, that's the fundamental point. You see, we sit here and we say, like, like in, in the old debates in, in the early days of the Reformation, of how can Jesus do this? If we know that a person is a physical reality, and he's sitting at the table at the Lord's Supper, then how can his body be, be and his blood be in bread and wine? And you understand that this causes us to sit down and make up rules for God about what God can or can't do according to our understanding of physical reality. Instead of realizing, well, in quantum complementarity, that's nothing. As a matter of fact, you are seated in the heavenlies while at the same time being present where you are. That's what Ephesians says. Ephesians 2.6 says you're seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, I can sit there and argue with him. Well, how can I do that? I'm a human being. How can I be in the heavens seated with Christ? That's impossible. But if I do that, then I'm arguing from my reason and trying to make God fit that. Instead of realizing, well, no, what's key here is that God says you're seated together in Christ in the heavenly places. So he's not asking you to, to explain it to him how he does it. He's just telling you that that's the case. And that's exactly what you get to here. We're, we're idolaters by nature. You know, Luther's great, great commentary, you know. Where, where he talks about that, that, that you cannot know God unless you first know him as the devil. You know, and what he means by that is to understand that's how that Psalm 117, the commentary, writes 44 pages on two verses. But what he says in there is to understand that by nature we're idolaters. We, we create God. And the only way we truly know God is when God comes and destroys the idol. And that he does through the word. He destroys the idol. And so we have this picture of somehow saying, well, that can't be. That's just a wafer and just wine. Whereas said, God says, Jesus says, no, that's my body and my blood. And we try to figure out how Jesus can do that, which shows that we're idolaters. Instead of understanding, like Luther says, well, simply it's in the words. It's what he says. It's not, what does this say? 
says, this is my body, you know, and Luther says, and that's it. You know, if he tells you this is my body, then it's his body. So historically, there are, I think there's probably what, three three main camps that most people will fall into on this. Right. You have the Catholic Church, which teaches transubstantiation. Right. You have the more reformed understanding, which teaches a symbolic presence that Jesus, it's not really his body and blood. It's just a symbol of his body and blood. And then you have the Lutheran interpretation, which says um, the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but hidden with and in with and under that bread and wine is the body of Christ. Yes. Yeah, Jamin. Yeah. And what I've noticed when you when you discuss it with people from these other denominations, um, especially if you're talking to kind of a Baptist or or, um, you know, reformed of some sort. Uh, often they wonder why it's so important. <laughs> they wonder why you, why they're like, can we just talk about the essentials? Why are we talking about this? And of course we would say, well, this is an essential. This is, yes. this is, uh, this is part of the essentials. You have to actually add this. Yes. So Jay, I remember a, um, a an account you told of a, a priest serving a rural community in the, um, I can't remember exactly where it was, but, um, it was, it, it was, um, it, it's a good way that I, I teach my students um, the differences between what we would believe about the Lord's Supper and let's say what the Catholic Church would believe. Would you mind, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know the story you're talking about. Uh, would I you mind that sharing that with us university. here? Um, and actually what it is, it wasn't a priest, it was actually during the days of Charlemagne when um, they wanted to uh, continue the practice of saying the mass. Um, it was very difficult because you didn't have people like that knew Latin. You had um, all sorts of Germanic languages and things like that up in Europe. And the if you read Cahill and you read how the Irish saved civilization, you know, and you know that they brought these priests out of Ireland and out of England and stuff like that. And they, they sit or not even priests, but they were monks. And they brought them out of Ireland to go and to, to teach in the further Frankish kingdoms and things like that, to teach them the mass. Because of course, they just believed you needed to recite the mass. So the, the priests- And by mass, you mean the words of institution, right? Well, no, the mass. The whole, the whole, the whole service, you know, the whole worship service. So they would teach them to say the mass in Latin and they didn't know Latin. So they were just basically learning to recite the words. So they would, they would teach people this and then they'd move on to the next village or whatever else. They'd teach at least one guy how to do this and leave him in place there to do the mass. And what happened is that they didn't know Latin. So they would, before you know it, they weren't really pronouncing the Latin the right way. And they were just kind of slurring the language, you know, and it, it was becoming all sorts of misshapen types of things. And the classic example of this that was spoken of by my professor was when you elevate the, the host. So the priest the takes the host and he elevates it. And in Latin, he says, hoc es meus corpus, this is my body. So he elevates it, brings it back down. At that point, 
when he ele begins to elevate it, it's simply bread. After he says, hocus meus corpus, it's now the body of Jesus Christ. According to Catholic right. doctrine. In transubstantiation, it changes. And um, what this professor of mine taught us is, is if you put those words up, hoc est meus corpus, then you, you understand that through time when you slur that, and it became understood then that what they would say is just hocus pocus. Oh. <laughs> and that's how that came into magic. That's where that you know, came from. It was like a magic thing. You know, the body of before it was bread. Now it's now it's the body of Jesus. Right. So that, yeah, that's how they did that. And and that's now we all know the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation is hocus pocus. And <laughs> hocus pocus. Yep. Well, it, you know, you can yeah. understand. Yeah. I'm not here to, to, to defend it, sure. but to realize very clearly why they did it. Because they're still dealing with Aristotle. Yeah, still right. dealing with questions of substance. You know, well, how can you say this is the body of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't change? Mm -hmm. If it's going to be the body of Jesus Christ, it has to change. At some point, there has to be a transubstantiation. And that's what I'm saying. It's Aristotle. It's substantia. You know, you, you have to have this. You have to have a change of substance. And what Luther was saying was essentially, well, no, you know, Luther didn't have that great a use for Aristotle at certain points. Mm -hmm. And what he said is that this is an issue of understanding the work of God in faith. You know, that, that we need to know that from the word, this is what it says. And we believe, therefore, that Jesus is present with those elements. We can't explain how it happens, but th that's what happens. It doesn't require a change of substance. Right. That's, 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 that's beautiful. I, I really mm -hmm. appreciate um, that context in this because um, we like to be able to logically think things out, especially in our modern day and age. And so transubstantiation is very attractive to people because it it makes logical sense okay well you say the words and then it then it becomes his body and blood okay that's a way that we can be faithful to christ's words and have it make sense with our human reason right but we don't have to make it make sense with our human reason it doesn't have to logically be consistent so when we say that it's the real body and blood of christ in the supper um is there a time um that it becomes the real body of christ you know we say the elements don't change but when does the when does Jesus become present in the bread and wine? That's an argument amongst Lutherans. It's uh, either you know, just always that way. Well, one one group after says the words of institution that it's with the words of institution that, that when you speak the words, which would be reflected in in the mass, you know, when you speak the words, that's when that takes place. Others would say that it actually takes place at the moment it it hits your mouth. Hmm. Yep. You know, and I think our catechism, when you look back at the other pages, you know, not the, the first pages in there, but when you look at pages, I think it's 115, no, 112, and you start reading from 112 in our catechism, that's kind of the view that you get in there. 
they, mm -hmm. they take that view, which I believe is more akin to like the Wisconsin Synod. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a Wisconsin Synod type of teaching. Um, whereas I think when you deal with the Missouri Synod, and I think probably a little bit more in the ELCA, you would see that they believe that it's at the words of institution that, that those things take place. Yeah, that's the whole um, argument of receptionism. Yeah, yeah. And so um, the, the people who would teach that there is, that it is at the words of institution, are, are, are they also the ones that um, speak of there being an abiding presence afterward? Well, that gets you into an entirely different question. I mean, yeah. that's something where you deal with the fact of how do you, what do you do with the elements that have been consecrated and things like that? And, you know, Lutherans don't believe, like Roman Catholics believe in the reservation of the host. So they can have a Corpus Christi feast and things like that, where they carry the, the host around for adoration and things like that. And Lutherans don't really believe in the reservation of the host. But they do believe that if you have consecrated element, that you need to consume it. At least reverence those that, those that hold to the viewpoint that it's at the words of institution that that takes place. They largely believe it has to be consumed or burned. Um, and burning being a reflection of that, because actually your body calories, you know, we understand our heat. And so your metabolism is actually burning the substance. So they, they believe that burning is the proper way to dispose of it if you can't physically eat it or you have consecrated material that you do that. Now, in the other groups, I don't think they're quite as strict. You know, I, I don't think they, they would say that there's no problem because that's, it doesn't do anything until it touches a person's lips. Right. And so um, is there is there a proper way to um, let, like, you know, I'm serving communion, I drop a wafer on the ground. I'm not going to serve that. Um, so I pick it up. Um, do you, does the pastor then eat it? That's what I tend to do. I just pop it in my mouth when no one's looking. <laughs> yeah, but I it's mean, also it's also a matter of convenience, because then you don't you don't want to like go hunting for a trash can or um no, I, but that, that's kind of been my practice. But I, I, I very early on in my ministry had someone who had a um, who I respected, who had a strong burden for reverencing the sacrament. Yeah. And he felt that um, it was the, that the reverence that we should have for whether or not, you know, Jesus just fell on the floor that that didn't really matter. him. But just that this bread is the body of Christ. Yeah. He's present there. Let's let's have reverence for it and let's eat it. Yeah. And I think that's what generally you kind of see. In Lutheranism, we understand we don't venerate it not in that regard, but we we reverence it. You know, we 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 take it very seriously. Um, you know, the story is told of Luther one time when he did apparently spill the wine, he got down on the floor and licked it up. You know, so I mean, you can have those types of things in there where people will say that that that's how you're you know, that that was appropriate, that he needed to do that. Um, I don't really know that we, we go that far. I don't, you can't really speak for all of the different people in relationship to that. 
But I think generally the idea that we reverence it and we treat it reverently, I think is, is very, very necessary. You know? Yeah. I know. I know for that reason, there's some people who have a problem with like using the little plastic cups because you're leave, there's a little bit of a remnant in there and you can throw it in the trash. Yeah. And, and you face that the little plastic cups are a question anyways, because of first Corinthians 10. Yeah, Paul uses that terminology, the cup that we bless, is it not one? Um, And that's why you see some churches use a pouring chalice. Mm -hmm. When they do the work, they do the words of institution in the pouring chalice, and then they pour it into other little cups. Um, But I mean, it is, it's, it, again, those are kind of interesting questions. I'm not going to pretend like I have any answers to them. Because right. things that even Lutherans don't have necessarily a complete consensus on. I think the most important thing, though, is that we would reverence the sacrament, and and um, it probably gets down to a matter of conscience too. Um, yeah, I think that that's true. And consciousness. Yes. The other side of that, you know, the Greek term for conscience is really consciousness. You need to be aware of what you're doing, which seems to be Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. You need to mm-hmm. be aware of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So where is this written, writes Luther? And he says, answer, the holy evangelist Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write thus. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Take, drink, ye all of it. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. How do these words from the scripture support what Luther has said about the Lord's Supper thus far? So he says, this is, this is where it's written, that this is the true body and blood of Christ. How do those words support that? How, how is that a supporting text for his viewpoint? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a pretty clear one there. <laughs> yeah. Where he, he just says that. And that's how we take it. We take the words. We just believe it. As they are, yeah. What he says. This is my body. Yeah. And may not be able to figure out how. But what he says is true. He says it. And so that that's what this is. This is my body. And I, I take it then as knowing that that is his body. How often would you say, um, in terms of communion frequency, um, we usually only get communion once a month um, in our church. Um, we do it on Monday, Thursday as well. But um, Jesus says, this do as, you, as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when he says, do it as oft as you drink it, what, what does that mean? How often should we be partaking of the sacrament? Is there a set number or does it just he mean as often as you can? Yeah, he doesn't say. And, and it, it, the meaning of the Greek is simply that, as often, as often as you do it. Is there the understanding wow. that you'll do it when you get together? Yes, I think that that's basically what was understood in the ancient church. And you see that in Acts at the end of Acts chapter two, that when they came together, they broke bread. And that's not just talking about that they had a meal. It meant the Lord's Supper. They, they came together for a communal meal that would then have the Lord's Supper as part of it. 
And as far as we can tell, amongst the ancients, they did that daily. Oh, wow. So, I mean, this was something that had a great deal of frequency. They came together for a communal meal daily, you know, in the, in the evening. They would come together for a communal meal. So I don't think we, we I don't want to get, I never want to get legalistic with it. Right. You know, I think that's where the danger comes in, where we start to say that you have to do it here or you have to do it there. Uh, Luther has a great quote where he says, you know, if you don't come to the supper once, he says, I believe you're still a Christian. He says, if, if you don't come to the supper a second time, he says, I start to have my doubts. <laughs> he says, if after four times you haven't come to the supper, I am certain that you are no believer. And so, I mean, Luther, Luther expressed it in that regard. That, and I think that that's really the key. There should be a desire for that supper. There's a desire for that supper in the heart of a Christian. And it, I, don't, I don't think God sets like a frequency table right. and says, you do it this often. But I think he wants it to be understood that this is something that we should really desire. In most of our churches, I think we do it once a month. In our church, we do it twice a month. Mm -hmm. um, if, if I had my way, I'd probably tell them I don't want to do a church service without it. Right. You know, and, and that would be my way of thinking. But I'm not, I don't think there's got to be some strict sort of rule to this. I yeah. think that people decide, I know part of it is, you know, and it may sound a little bit strange, but it was the temperance movement in our group that kind of made it sound like, well, if you wanted to have communion more often, you know, you're more like a wino, you know, oh, you, yeah. you wine all the time. And, and, you know, and I can understand coming out of their background where, where that would be certainly a possible thinking on their part. So I don't, I don't really get into the question of frequency too much. You know, I think that a congregation can set that and understand that. If we were to follow the book of Acts, it would be every time we get together. Mm -hmm. We do that. Um, but there's no reason to have strict adherence to those practices. You know, we don't follow Christian synagogue either, which they did in the book of Acts. Yeah, especially if you're coming into a new group to try and change things is always a challenge. One of the objections... Yeah, don't want to offend people. Right. You know, the, the only offense, I heard a Lutheran guy say this once, the only offense there should be is the cross. Right. And not man-made cross offenses. You know, the, the, you don't want to offend people in their practice and say, well, you people aren't spiritual enough because you're not doing communion enough or things like that. Yeah. You know, because they're going to look at you and say, well, my parents, my great grandparents all the way back, we've always done this this way. You know, and and I don't think you want to offend people. Yeah, and you, you also offend them in the sense of causing of damaging their conscience or causing yes. them to, you know, if yes. you if you harp on it too much, people might, might 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 agree with you and then not be able to have it as often as they would. You know what I mean? And I think that could be yes. a danger too. Yeah, you don't want to hurt people. There's nothing in the gospel that brings people to hurt. You know, it's there for their salvation. Yeah, one of the objections I heard about having it too much is that it wouldn't be as as precious if you had it every Sunday. And I've heard that before, too. And that probably has some merit to it. I think it does in our sense. Yeah. But 
But if um, one of the one thought I had was, um, you know, if I started giving out hundred dollar bills to everyone who came to church um, every Sunday, yeah, maybe after the fourth fourth time they wouldn't appreciate it as much. You know, they'd be very appreciative the first few times they got it. However, yeah. the value of that hundred dollars doesn't change, and if I stopped giving it to them every month, they'd sure notice. Yeah, when is your service? Our services are at <laughs> ten o'clock during the summers and then ten thirty. Ten thirty during the uh, after Labor Day. But do you understand that it's just like with the liturgy? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that have problems with the liturgy, and they don't realize we follow the liturgy. Oh yeah, we do. We we follow the Lutheran Mass. You know that's the what's laid out in our altar book. You know, so when we do services and things, we follow the old Lutheran mass, which came through the Swedish Finnish church, you know, so, mm -hmm. so that's, that's what we follow. It's just a little bit but, incognito. Yeah. But people wouldn't realize that within time. Yeah. Can you get like when I was a kid, can I recite, I can still recite that old liturgy, you know, because I heard it every week and I went there and did that. Did it have the same meaning to me? No, it does now. I love that thing because I understand a lot more about what I was saying and why I was saying. So I have a very high appreciation for it, but I can understand somebody that would say, well, yeah, you would lose your appreciation for it. If you just did it by rote and you just do it over and over again, you're not really expressing the fullness of it. And I agree with that. Yeah. You, you might know, not have as much appreciation for it. But that doesn't diminish the intrinsic value of it. Exactly. Because you have to teach that. Mm -hmm. you know, what we failed at when I was a kid is nobody taught you this, except my dad. You know, my dad tried to teach that to us. But in the church, they really didn't. You know, they didn't, they didn't teach us about a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So would you, um, have you, do you, do you happen to have some, a, a Greek New Testament in front of you? I happen to have that, yes. Well, what a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> Not planned at all. No. Wow. This is just working out great. Would you mind um, to uh, to give us a little Greek lesson about the tail end of this? When Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me, um, who's the one doing the remembering there? Um, what's that about? Because a lot of people use that to say, okay, see, it's just a symbol. And this is just a memorial service of us just you know, taking the sacrament and honoring Jesus and thinking good thoughts about him and remembering him. Um, so I'm wondering, Jay, if if, uh, if you'd be able to uh, tell us what those words mean in Greek and um, give us some of the Greek nuance to uh, help us understand that section. Well, actually, the one who does the best job of this is St. Paul. And, and St. Paul really tells us, and that's the beauty of 1 Corinthians 11, which is why it's interesting that that's really what we use in our altar book. Because when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about this aspect of the onomenesis, which is that word for remembrance in Greek, it, it's very interesting when you go through that. And um, he talks about this, and he basically says, this do... Um, he uses uh, an interesting, well, I'm not going to get into that because that's going to get too technical, but, but he uses an interesting usage of the personal pronoun here instead of like a normal possessive. 
he, he, he uses the sense of an accusative, which is, is more um, for remembrance of me. Um, this do for remembrance of me. And um, it, it's interesting that the thing that's added to this um, is when Paul does this, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the Lord's death you announce until he comes. And we understand a memorial. When, when he's talking about a memorial, and St. Paul says very clearly, he says, that's what you're doing. You're, you're memorializing the death of Jesus until he comes. You're, you're, you're making this reality your reality here by partaking of the true body and blood. That reality is the proclamation of his true death, that he actually physically died for you. And he physically died. So you are now, when you carry out this act, you are constantly bringing that memorial to life in carrying this out until you don't need it anymore, which is when he comes again. But here in this life, you need to have this memorial, this announcement of his death. Now, what's fascinating about this and what really got me going on this, and I another one of those points, I can't believe that I ever missed this before. When you look at Numbers chapter 10, and you go back to Numbers chapter 10, and you look at um, Numbers 10, verse 10, and, and you read that out of the Septuagint, when you read that, because the Hebrew text, you know, and this is my opinion, the Hebrew text is not nearly as reliable as the Septuagint. And actually, for those that wouldn't know, the the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It, the ones, the copies of the Septuagint that we have are much older than the copies of the Hebrew Old Testament that we have. And so, when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from the Septuagint. He always does, you know, almost exclusively. Jesus and the disciples quote from the Septuagint. And when you read this. In the King James Version, it reads, also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial. And the Greek uses that word, onomanesis, that they would be for you an onomanesis of your God before your God. Then he simply says, I am the Lord your God. And it's very interesting that parallel then between what Paul does in Corinthians. Because what he's saying is that you do this in remembrance and you are technically, you're proclaiming the death of Jesus as a physical reality for you. That this is a constant sense of your reality. What it says here in Numbers is exactly the same thing. He says, you do this, he says, at whatever assembly you have, 
you do this as a memorial. He says, and then he says, because I'm the Lord, your God. Because I am the Lord, your God. And that's why it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul makes that contrast between idolatry and what we do as Christians when we, we eat the bread and drink the, from the cup. And it's interesting that here in Greek, it also says, and when Robert Alter, who is a very famous Hebrew scholar who just is a brilliant translator, when he translates this, he says, it's not over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. What he says is it's over the sacrifices of your communion offerings. And I thought that was very mm. interesting that he used that term. But when you look at this in the Septuagint, what it says is that you blow the trumpets over your offerings, your whole burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your salvation offerings or your deliverance offerings which really brings us to the sense of the lord's supper you know mm -hmm. and the next part that you want to talk about because it is for the forgiveness of sins it is for the remission of sins you know and this seems to be exactly what he's talking about here i'm the lord your god you do this at the assembly because i admit you to the assembly I remit your sins. I forgive you. I receive you. So it's amazing when you see this in Corinthians, Paul being the Torah scholar that he was, of course, that he would know all of this. You know, and, and the language by the Holy Spirit, I think, really communicates this very clearly, you know, of this sense of recognizing, well, now Jesus God in the flesh has died for us. And we are remembering his death because it's him that through his blood forgives us. He remits our sin. And so it, it, I think it's just fabulous, you know, and it's, it's way beyond me. You know, I sit there and look at it. I was, I was looking at this stuff a couple of days ago, and I honestly, I couldn't hardly keep looking at it because it was just completely blowing me away, you know, to, to read through this and to realize that, that all the way back, that when God is calling an assembly of his people, the language that he's speaking of is exactly the same language that we use in the Lord's Supper. But when the Lord's Supper now this that could only be pictured here in shadow has now been brought to reality. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So part of the reference that this comes into our altar book, our dismissal says um, something like this, dear friends, praise the Lord for his gracious gift of which you have now partaken and proclaim his death until he cometh again. Yes. So I, I've generally looked at that as a quotation from first Corinthians. Yes. And, um, but you'll notice that um, different congregations, different pastors, they put a little different flair to that. Some people will say and proclaim his suffering, his death and his glorious resurrection until he comes again. Yeah. Um, and so 
I, I don't want to be too critical of, of that. I think that's kind of probably just how some people were taught it. They figured these things were important too. Um, but um, I've always kind of looked at that. You declare his death um, or and proclaim his death until he comes again as a um, almost like a um, admonition to the congregation to to preach the Lord's death. But it's more than that it then, isn't it, based on what you're saying? It's much more than just a simple admonition. This is a also a description of what you're doing by simply partaking of the meal. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I, I do that. I add those words in there, too, because I want people to understand that he's not just talking about proclaiming the fact that Jesus died. It, it, it's talking about the fullness of everything that Jesus did. And he's, yeah. he's just using that term there in terms of the memorial. But, you know, the first time I ever heard that, I think, was Brother Mati Valitalo used it. I heard him say it. I, I really felt that that was really a good, good thing, because I think it kind of fleshed that out a little bit to understand. Well, yeah, we're not just running around saying Jesus died. You know, that's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying here is to understand that by that death, your sins are remitted through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. You know, you have been raised to newness of life, and you need to memorialize this. You need to understand that, that when you partake of this, that's really what's going on here. You know, you, you are living this out. I've heard people describe that onomanesis as more in the sense of like a living memory of something. And I, I can't find that in the Greek, so I can't, and I won't do that, but I just kind of did. But I mean, but, it, but it's not, you know, that's not something that you can find in Greek, but I have heard people say that before. And, and I think that that's a fair enough type of conclusion is to realize, well, yes, he's not talking about that you do this once and we just remember that Jesus died. You know, we do this, constantly we we are constantly engaged in this we are living because jesus died and rose from the dead so we died we died with him says very clearly in the scripture and he makes us alive with him and when we partake of his blood we partake of his life yes in the fullness going of going back life. to leviticus not not abstractly not by a symbol. Yes. We are so, we, that blood is our blood. So uh you know, kind of connecting it to this is not just a symbol, this is you know, this is actual. Um, why do so many denominations have such a problem with saying it's literally his body and blood? I think the biggest problem, honestly, is because the Catholics say it. <laughs> no, I, I that makes sense that honestly yeah. it was an anti-catholic sort of sentiment yeah you know that that we just don't do that mm -hmm. and so we we have a different understanding of this um but I, you know i can't really answer for them in totality um but i think that 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 has something to do with it and and if you do this as a lutheran They'll just turn around and tell you, well, you're just Catholic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I get that all the time. Well, what's the difference between you and the Catholics then? As though mm -hmm. the Catholics can't be right about anything. 
you know, and that's, right. that's what I think is is odd about it. You know, so they can't be right about anything. You know, I I just don't think that's really quite accurate. Yeah, to be clear, we don't go as far as they do, but we do right. recognize the real presence. Yeah, we don't, so, we don't um, say I, that the elements change. Right. We don't say they change, but we understand very clearly that, that the body of Jesus Christ is present in those elements. And when we partake of that bread and we partake of that wine, we are partaking of his real body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Exactly. And that is huge. Um, you know, I, I when I was reading through Leviticus, that was that's what's just been going through my head. I it's um, for there for Jews for generations and generations were commanded, don't consume blood. The life is in the blood, and you're not to consume life. And the the um, part of the problem with that was that that was what the pagans would do. They would drink the blood and think that they were absorbing the life force of the animal. Yes, and God would say. Well, actually, the life is in the blood, and that's why you're not to have it. Um, you're not to put any stock in any of this. Right. And then he turns that whole pagan practice on its head, and he says, actually, now I'm going to command you to drink blood. And in giving you my blood, I'm going to give you my life. Yes. So that my life will be your life. Yes. And it's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's um, So I heard a, um, a Greek... Uh, I don't know if he was a Greek scholar. I heard a um, pastor of a different Lutheran denomination of teaching on these words of institution. And he said that um, he would argue that the way to translate um, this do in remembrance of me would be um, this do in my remembrance of you. This do basically the way he explained it, this do because I remember you. Is there any credence to that argument? Um I, I don't, you know, and looking at the grammar, I can't, I can't say that. It's not like I would say you, you would need the context that St. Paul uses it in. And I think that that tells you that that's not the case. Okay. But I think when you go back to the Hebrew text um, of the verse that I gave you and things like that, I think that there is a sense of that. Where, where you could say in relationship to the aspect of idolatry that God is calling you to remember him mm -hmm. because he is the Lord your God. So at that point, I, I could see that point being made that they wouldn't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive of one another. There um, could be a little bit of both. Yeah, but Paul's context definitely moves it into the sense of saying that this is a memorial that you are dealing with my death, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's what I'm telling you to remember or dealing with Jesus' death. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So Luther says, what is the benefit of such eating and drinking? Answer that is shown us in these words given and shed for you for the remission of sins, namely that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Is it actually forgiveness that we get when we partake of the sacrament? Or is it just direct, directing us to the forgiveness that we get from the death of Christ on the cross? Um, so I know this can be confusing for a lot of lay people. This idea is that we say, Jesus died to forgive you all your sins. And then we say... Um, Baptism works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil and grants salvation. And then we, we read this too, where it says, 
Well, we receive forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation when we eat this. So how does that work? Is there multiple ways that we are forgiven, or is it all centralizing on the same thing? What's the, how do you clear up that confusion for people? Quantum reality, quantum time. I mean, you come to the point of understanding when did all of this take place? God says that his son is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So he was slain from the foundation of the world. When were we forgiven? Well, in God's mind, we were forgiven from the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In human history, when did that take place? When he suffered and died on Calvary's cross and he rose from the dead. For my human history, when does that take place? When I understand and believe it, then it comes to me as, as a reality at that point. Is it unreal at any of these other points? No, it's just as real. But there's different understandings of that reality. And, and this is really what you come to. It's just like, well, my sins were forgiven 2,000 years ago on a cross. Jesus declared me forgiven. But when I hear the confessor say to me, your sins are forgiven you in the name of blood of Jesus, well, my sins are physically forgiven me at that point. In other words, they're not exclusive of one another. It's all of them. Yes, it's, it's, and it's always been. Because from the foundation of the world, God chose to forgive us. He chose to save us. So again, it brings you to this thing of like I was talking about with the creation, that all of this is in the mind of God. And that's why you understand that like St. Peter, when he talks about the end of the world, which is great in quantum physics, because that's easy. You know, if an electron is traveling in a stream and it travels at 144,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's how hot that thing is. But you don't get all the energy because it's quantized. So you don't get all of that. You don't flip on a light switch and your house burns down. But at the end of the world, St. Peter says, with a whoosh and a crackle, he says, it's going to be that everything melts in fervent heat. Well, now you understand, if God allows that energy no longer to be quantized, but that energy is released at that point, then whoosh, that's it. Everything's gone in a whoosh and a crackle in fervent heat, just like St. Peter says. So you understand that there's a reality that God exists in that is far beyond our ability to perceive. And with quantum physics, we're kind of like scratching the surface of this a little bit and, and starting to understand this. But also in the concept of time, there's a, there's a total concept, a difference between our concept of time because we're relative to time. And God is absolutely apart from time. Time has no value to God. It only has a value for us. And so this is what you understand with these things. When we talk about the forgiveness of sins, well, these are not, they aren't exclusive of one another. And when I hear it and I believe it, my sins are forgiven. Now, it's not that they weren't forgiven 2,000 years ago, and it's not that they weren't forgiven technically when God slew the animals and dressed Adam and Eve in the skins. 
You know, he had already forgiven them. All of that hinging on the coming of Jesus Christ. And so this is what this is the point that I'm trying to make that when we come to things like the Lord's Supper, we can't be Aristotle. We can't sit right. down and try to break them down into sensory packets and say, this is how this happens. No, we have to hold to the word. What does the word say? This is my body. And it's given for the remission of sins. Okay. Good enough. Okay, good enough no, I'm done with that. This is my body. It's given to you for the remission of sins. In our own catechism, page 117, you know, question 19, they reiterate this same thing. That's exactly what they say. It says that for where there is remission of sins, there are also life and salvation. Our faith is strengthened and we have the assurance of the remission of sins. We become united with Christ so that he is in us and we in him. Our faith in the resurrection and life everlasting is strengthened. I don't know a better way to put that. You know, this is Schwebelius's uh, catechism that was translated out of Finnish and Swedish by our people, you know, and, and put into our catechism. I, I think they did a wonderful job. You know, I, I think they nailed it. Well, is that what you say nowadays? Nailed it. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that's about five years old, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so communion then is a means of grace. It's another way that God gives us his grace. Yes. But like Luther says, there's actually only one sacrament. He says, and that sacrament is the word. It's Jesus. He is the sacrament. Mm -hmm. And he says, he is the means of grace. Yes. He says, so where Jesus is, there is forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what you see in the New Testament, where Jesus is, there's forgiveness of sins. And this is, this is where you really come to this point of understanding God becoming incarnate is really the essence of this. God becomes incarnate because he has forgiven us. You know, he is not holding us accountable. Like St. Paul says, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not, not counting our trespasses. You know, and he says, not imputing our trespasses in this regard. They are not counted to us because Jesus Christ entered in the flesh suffered and died and rose from the dead. We are celebrating that reality when we do communion. We celebrate that reality when we baptize. We celebrate that reality when we declare somebody's sins forgiven in the name and blood of Jesus. We're celebrating a reality that's God's reality that enters our reality in different ways, but we can't interpret that reality from our reality. We have to go strictly from the word. What does the word say? That's what it says. Okay, then I'm done. You know, I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. That's what that says. That's what that says. That's, I think, one of the things that has really, I, I guess, in, in my spiritual journey, one of the things that has stood out the most, if someone were to ask, like, like what was kind of the biggest you know, realization, I guess, uh, during this process is just purely that when the word says something, it means it straight up. It just means it. 
And there's no like, there's no like, well, okay, you know, this, that, you know, there's no kind of like equivocation. There's not really sort of a, well, in, there's no qualification about, well, sometimes, well, sometimes this, sometimes, especially when it's from Jesus, from when it's from God specifically, he just can't say something and it not happen. And so when people, people like to bring up sort of the, you know, thief on the cross, especially when it comes to like baptism and whatnot, um, there, there was just no, there aren't any, there's no if, ands, or buts on the thieves on the thief on the cross because, because of Jesus's words, when he said today, you'll be with me in paradise. We have to accept that there is no other option. Yes. Um, and I think that that is where this, this kind of comes from. Yes. It's Job. You know, I love that when it gets to the end of Job. And he's talking about who is this that darkens counsel without understanding? You know, and when Job is done, Job says, it was me that darkens counsel without understanding. I didn't know what I was talking about. And he says, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And God basically says, well, I heard you. He says, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to let your friends off the hook too, because they didn't know what they were talking about either. He says, but just as long as we have one thing clear, what I say and do is what really matters. I'm God and you're Job. And you remember that. And he says, and life is going to be good for you. From, as long as you remember that. You remember that. Life is good. And we have gotten so full of ourselves with this aspect of our knowledge that we think that somehow we can tell God what he can think and what he can't think, what he can say and what he can't say. Instead of understanding, well, no, actually, I don't know anything, but I know this much. What he says is true. That's what he says. This is yeah, my it's, body. It's kind of the height of, um, I don't know, it's almost, it's almost funny in a sense, in a tragic sense. But, um, you know, in the garden, the devil told Adam and Eve, um, that um, that they wouldn't die, but that they would be like God and know good and evil. Yeah. Then the fall happens, and it says their eyes are opened. Yeah. And um, they, so they they stole the knowledge of good and evil from God, basically. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. And then we, the human race, has been trying to use it against him for like the whole time and say, "Oh no, I know better than you." Yes. And it's like, no, we need to disabuse ourselves of that and actually just understand that our even our knowledge of good and evil of what we think is right and wrong is fallen is backward in comparison. Yeah, it, to what it, it, it has to we have to just let it be like it was for Adam and Eve. Right. It has to just be God. Yes. And that's what's what good and evil? Said. God. God is our knowledge. Good, evil of good. and you call evil good. Yep. Because that's the problem. Satan didn't totally lie. What he said was true. But we can't tell the difference. And that's going to be our struggle our whole life. It is. Giving that back to God. Until we're in the grave. We're, we're, yep. That's Luther, Psalm 117. We're idol makers. We constantly have to be brought to the word in order to destroy that idol. Because we erect the idol all the time. We have to be brought back to the word and constantly be brought into that word. Because the word destroys the idol. And it brings out what is really true. And that's what you see in the Lord's Supper. This is the true body and blood. 
This is real. That's your real God. He really did suffer and die for you. He really did incorporate you into himself. You know, that's why I love that on page 117 in our catechism. He did actually physically incorporate you into himself. And he now feeds and strengthens you in your faith through his body and blood. Amen. I I know this is true for me, and I assume it's true for everyone else. But um, the biggest idol that we're going to fight is ourselves. Yes. When we question God or we equivocate and say, oh, it can't really mean that. That's what we're doing. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. And that's going to be the Christian struggle. We want to be the one who controls what happens to us. We want to be the one who decides. But but God doesn't allow us that luxury. Antichrist means to stand in the place of God. It does not mean to be opposed to. And in that place means to stand in the place of. So Antichrist Mm -hmm. is to try to make ourselves God. And that's what Paul says in Thessalonians. When you see the man of lawlessness on the, the throne in the temple, he says, seated in the temple, then you know that this is what's taken place. You look around in our society and you can see what's going on. Human beings are arrogantly asserting themselves to be God. They decided they're God. They get, they get to decide how to do these things. And that's where you see that John tells us that in 1 John. He says, this has been going on since we've, we've, we've been dealing with this. You know, this same antichrist is a present reality for us. But in this age, it has become very, very accelerated. You know, and the human being is so smitten with itself. You know, and it's understanding that it doesn't realize. And that's why I say I love Greenstein because Greenstein, that's when I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, I got mm-hmm. through all this and woke up one day and realized I didn't I didn't realize any of this. I didn't know what it really meant. And he, and he says, and I still don't. You know, I'm still looking at this stuff and I can't I can't tell you what physical reality is. But we can. You see, that's why you want to go there. And I can tell you what physical reality is. That's Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, the word. That's the physical reality, which is why he is the agent of creation. It's through him that all things came into being. And that answers that that kind of brings us into Luther's next question. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Right. And, and he, Luther says, it's not the eating and drinking indeed that does them, but the words which stand here, namely, given and shed for you for the remission of sins, which words are beside the bodily eating and drinking as the chief thing in the sacrament. And he that believes these words has what they say and express, namely, forgiveness of sins. Yes. And I think you, you just hit that on the, on the head by, with that statement about who Jesus is. And what he is and what he gives us. Yes. Yeah. I, I have a kind of a dumb question. Uh, could, could Jesus have used something other than eating and drinking uh, to deliver this? Or was he sort of constrained by, by something specific where he had to use that as, as, the, as the means? Could he have, like, like, could he have said, hey, uh, you know, the, the, 
what, what, what we're going to use is uh, you have to do a handstand, <laughs> you know, or something like that instead. Man, I'd be, I'd be done. I know it wouldn't work very well. I can eat and drink. I can do that. Yeah. I, I mean, those are the great questions that you can always raise is, is could he have done something different? And of course, when you're dealing with God, no, you know, he, he does exactly what he does for, suppose, yeah. for the purpose of what he does. And like people will bring up all the time in the Old Testament, you had these communal meaning meals all the time. You know, they were very, very significant. And they'll indicate that that was looking forward to the coming of, of Jesus, you know, and even Jesus eats with sinners, you know, which is quite a fascinating thing. You know, the, the accusation that's brought against him so often is that he eats with sinners. So he has this sense of this communing with a sinful world and liberating the world from its sinfulness. He doesn't acknowledge its sinfulness. He acknowledges its salvation. And so yeah. in relationship to this, and again, 2 Corinthians 5, you know, that's what Paul says. If, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, everything has become new. And so you see this sense of Jesus bringing his kingdom, which is establishing the new thing. And it takes place in a communal meal. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I would add that um, I think um, the whole Bible points to, or throughout the history, God is pointing to this meal, this sacrament, you know, the, the, um, in reading through Leviticus, you know, after some of the sacrifices and some of the offerings, the priest would have to eat it. The people that made the sacrifice would have to eat it. Yes. It was part of it that you had to eat it. And um, going, you know, all the life is in the blood. He's pointing for these are all shadows. And uh, one thing that I um, was just looking at because I just had to write a newsletter article on this. It's the gospel text coming up, the parable of the lost sheep. Yes. And um at the beginning, like you said, Jesus it says that the Pharisees are grumbling that he's eating and drinking with sinners and publicans. And um, we don't understand this in our day and age as much, though there's a little bit of a significance to it. But um, sharing a meal with somebody in that culture was a lot different than us. You know, we can go and um, meet someone and say, hey, you want to get lunch? And it's no big deal. Yeah. But um, you were actively declaring association when you shared a meal with someone. Yes. And so it's not just that Jesus is sitting next to them at lunch, but he's saying, hey, these are my people. Yes. They're with me. Yes. They're a, I'm attaching myself to them and their reputation. Yes. And the sinners, um, it wasn't in the sense that we tend to use that term a lot today. We tend to say, you know, we tend to think of sinners as like a general term for all of us, an all encompassing term. But back then, what this meant was these are people who are actively, willfully living a lifestyle of sin. Yes. You know, not people who are struggling against it, people who are known sinners in the community. These are the bad people, the people that you would never in a million years want to associate yourself with. Yes. And yet Jesus does. Jesus he eats with them. Yes. And he eats with them because he counts them as his own. Yes. Yeah. And this is very good news for us because that means that he does the same thing for us, especially when we eat this meal. Yes. 
It's pretty, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it is as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. Who then receives such sacrament worthily? Answer, fasting and bodily preparation is indeed a fine outward training, but he is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. But he that does not believe these words or doubts is unworthy and unfit. For the words for you require altogether believing hearts. So there is a lot of um, words written about worthy reception of the Lord's Supper, isn't there? There are, yeah. Um, So apparently during Luther's time, there must have been some kind of practice where you needed to fast or do some other bodily preparation in order to have the sacrament? Well, there's was there of, that kind of teaching? Of people that still do that. Mm-hmm. They, they will not eat anything on a day when they're going to mass or when they go to, before they go to church, they won't eat anything if they know they're going to receive communion. I'm one of them. And that's a fine outward <laughs> training, right? I do, that. I do that myself. I, I, I won't eat before I go to partake of communion. I've been doing that lately, but that's because I've been intermittent fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And I never tend to eat breakfast anyway. Yeah. I'm not a breakfast eater either. Luther stresses faith in these words given and shed for you for the remission of sin. Yes. As being a requirement in order to partake of the Lord's Holy Supper. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of deny- denominations. Yeah, to, to receive it worthily. Yeah, yes. Right. right. Um, so a lot of people concern themselves with receiving the Lord's Supper worthily. Yes. Um, where does where does that come from? Why is that so important? I think it's kind of scary myself. And uh, in, in, in a different way to understand that he's not saying that that you personally have to figure out how to make yourself worthy to take the supper. Mm-hmm. Because you can't get that worthy. What, what you're acknowledging is your unworthiness, yeah. not worthy to take this supper. But by faith, I believe that Jesus Christ offers it to me, even though I am unworthy of this. And he makes me worthy. He declares me just for Christ's sake. And I think that that's where we have to, because I remember, I remember a guy talking about this once that I knew a long, long time ago, and, and he wasn't Lutheran. But he said, you know, he didn't come to communion because he didn't feel worthy. And that's always kind of stuck in my craw. Because I, I always have thought, well, then you're going to take it when you feel worthy. You know, I can't, I can't honestly tell you at any point that I have felt worthy of, of the supper. But I take it knowing that I'm worthy because Jesus Christ has by his own work made me worthy in himself so i think that we have to be cautious with those words because they can be used in a wrong way that somehow or another i have to have the feeling of being worthy but it's really faith it's knowing that god has done this that then i receive it in a worthy manner i think it's dangerous both in that sense and also in the sense that 
Um, in, in some cases, it can be used as a, uh, um, uh, essentially like a tool of power by other people against you um, oh, yeah. to say, well, these are the, these are the conditions under which you will be worthy to partake of the Lord's Holy Supper. Uh, and you can't take it unless I approve of you yes. um, in, so, in some way, um, which I always, you know, it, it kind of, it definitely didn't, doesn't sit well with me too, you know, too much um, specifically because I feel that, um, you know, the, the, the verses that, that establish that talk about every man uh, examining himself rather than another person examining them in a in some way so that that seemed at least to me to go contrary to what the the words actually said uh, but i'm curious to know what your what you think about that yeah i agree i think we have to be very cautious with any type of language that brings us back to like a personal introspection in relationship to this or somebody else doing an extrospection of, of another person in relationship to this. I think that that's, this is a communal meal and it's for sinners. It's, it's not for people who aren't sinners. It's for sinners. And so I, I am a sinner and I'm very good at it, but I am a sinner who is saved by grace. I, I come to the supper not because I have in some way, shape, or form freed myself from sin or that I'm somehow better, you know, that I'm not quite the sinner that I was before. And so that I'm under any sort of um, microscope in relationship to this. If people ask me, I am a sinner, you know, just pure and simple. I, I'm a sinner. Um, there isn't anything I'm not guilty of. And I know it from the Sermon on the Mount. I know that. So now I can come in. If you accuse me of being a sinner, all I can do is agree with you. But I'm going to the altar. Because as a sinner, that's where I belong. I need to go there. I'm not unworthy by being a sinner. Right. Actually, kind of the opposite. Exactly. I'm unworthy if I think I'm not one or that I can measure it in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Then I might be messed up. But I that's I need that thing. You know, I, I need to go there because I am such a sinner. You know, but also the point that goes with this, I think is very important. I remember having some long discussions with some of my Missouri Senate friends about this because their point of discerning the body was always within the Lutheran corpus doctrinae. You know, it was always within the Lutheran body of doctrine. Well, you're not, you're not discerning the body if you don't know that Jesus is really present there. And I don't see that in 1 Corinthians. You know, when he's talking about it, what he's talking about is discerning the body. He says, how can you eat up all the elements of the communion and not care about the other person? He says, if you're hungry, then eat at home. 
And I think he's making a great point. I need to understand. I don't just go to the supper for myself. I go to the supper for everybody. You know, so that's discerning the body. I'm discerning the body of Christ that all of these other people are there. They're coming to this supper. One of my favorite stories, I tell that story all the time because I loved it. One Sunday when I was preaching at Hawkinson, I preached at Hawkinson and I just remember sitting there in communion and watching this stream of people come there, this stream, and then this huge stream of young people that came out of the balcony. You know, you just had this stream of young people come out of the balcony. And I sat there and I realized I'm in the fellowship of the saints. Mm -hmm. Every last one of these sinners is coming here to receive this supper. But we're in the fellowship of the saints. We're in the communion of the saints. Because we have all come here looking for this same thing. And we're all receiving it. This is the body of Jesus Christ. You know, in this aspect. And I need to understand that. I don't go to communion for myself. I go to communion for the church. And I'm so thankful. I thank God for that experience of sitting there in Hawkinson and watching that. And how he just really kind of brought that into my mind. You need to understand. These are all my people. You don't even know the great bulk of these people. You don't even know who they are. And all you need to understand is those are my people. And they're coming here for my gift. And Jay, all you need to realize is I'm giving it to them just exactly the same way I give it to you. I'm giving it to them exactly the same way. And you always recognize this is my body. Yes. You no, know, you know, these are my people. Um, so the you mentioned your Missouri Synod friends. They would, they would argue that um, the words discern the body means recognize that Jesus is present in the supper. Some of them. So those churches, um, for the most part, practice what's called called closed communion, right? Where they they will deny communion to people, not only if they don't have that understanding, but also if they don't um, uh, take the chance, take the opportunity to um, undergo um, or have a conversation with the pastor and explain to them that they have the right understanding. Yeah. Um, and the reason being for that would be because. Um, worthy reception of the lord's supper is important because people who partake of it unworthily paul says eat and drink damnation to themselves yes and so this is an effort to guard against that right yes, yes. i get kind of um a little bit um i i kind of struggle with closed communion um i i find myself um coming to the point where i kind of think discern the body is is almost talking about both aspects because obviously when Paul says, so then my brothers, when you come together, he doesn't say have the right intellectual understanding of this so that you um, don't come together for judgment. What he does say is he gives us all these lists of what they should do. If you're hungry, eat at home, you know? Um, but, but I do think that in recognizing the body, there is also a recognition of um, Christ's body too, and having reverence, um, for who he is and what he has done and what he's giving us there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was visiting with a Missouri Synod pastor friend of mine, and he they, they have this a lot of talk about unity as a prerequisite for communion. You have to be um, united with the altar that you're partaking at. 
Um, but um, my thought to them, my, my question to them was, you know, when I read what Paul says, um, he says, um, he does not say that um, unity is a requirement of the supper, but he almost talks about it more like it's a, um, it's a benefit or a effect of what the supper gives us. Because mm. when he says that part that you quoted, this cup of blessing that we drink, is it not a communion with the blood of Christ? And the blood, bread that we break, is it not a communion with the body of Christ? And then he says, so then we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so I, I see this um, as communion affecting that unity and bringing us together as the body, as you recognize. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I do think there is extreme benefit for, um, for everyday Christians um, to examine themselves, to confront themselves with, you know, what, why are you here? Why am I here? Am I here because my parents expected of me? Am I here because this is what a good Christian does? You know, if those are your motivations, then you you probably shouldn't take communion if you're just going through the motions. But this is for sinners who are seeking Christ. And that's where he is for all of us, is in this Lord's Supper. This is one of the places that he promises to be for us and for our forgiveness. Um, but, you know, we might, um, we might, uh, scratch our heads at closed communion, but we do kind of practice it in most of our churches, right? We uh, we don't usually confirm people until, or serve people communion until they've been through confirmation. Um, and so it's, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. I mean, we do, yeah, we do kind of just we, we do practice closed communion ourselves in that form by only only communing those, generally speaking, who have um, gone through confirmation. Um, but our churches generally also don't require a visitor to have a conversation with a pastor in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. Some pastors will will kind of read a, a you know, a little, a, like a, basically a warning um, of, hey, you know, just... Uh, keep in mind that this is this is in the Bible, you yes. know, <laughs> you, you don't want to do this. Yeah, I try to make a practice of yeah. reading from first Corinthians 11 um, before we partake of the supper, that, that warning statement of Paul's to, yeah. to put us in the right frame of mind. And and I, I find a lot yeah, of times, put it, mostly yeah. I feel like I'm doing it not only for the congregation and for my flock, but for myself. Um, because it mm -hmm. is so easy to get stuck in a rut and just go through the motions do what's expected of me, even as a pastor. And um, yeah, I think the hardest thing is yep. enforcement. You really, you really come down to a difficult situation in terms of enforcement of, you know, I know a guy in Minnesota, Missouri Synod guy, he wouldn't give communion to anybody that he hadn't confirmed. Hmm. It didn't matter if they were Missouri Synod. You know, he had to have confirmed them. Mm. Um, and well, you know, I've known Missouri Synod guys that would give anybody, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> that didn't really bother them at all. And I had one Missouri Synod guy. I said, "Well, if I come to your church, can one of my friends?" I said, "If I come to your church, can I have communion? Will you give me the sacrament?" He says, 
you're more Lutheran than anybody I know. He says, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the sacrament. So when, when you come to this point, you realize that it's kind of like, what's the speed limit? Yeah. You know, what is it in Michigan? <laughs> well, 10 over. You know, I mean, you understand that it's in the realm of enforcement that really that you come down to that point of, of how do you deal with that? Yeah. And I think that really, even if you ask most people about what they're doing at the Lord's Supper, they might speak the words if they've been properly educated. But I don't know that they'd really understand necessarily what they were saying. It's just kind of like the Trinity. You know, if you ask most people what the Trinity is, well, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you ask them, well, how does that work? You know, well, now you're in an entirely different thing. But we don't keep people out of communion because they don't understand the Trinity. You know, and I I think it's kind of that same sort of thing. If we believe that a person has been given this understanding and by faith they confess it. Well, yes, this is the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus then essentially we, we feel that, yeah, you then you can partake of those elements. You know, we're not going to make you give us the doct- doctrinal explanation of how this happens. You know, but some people are more particular in that. You know, that, yeah, I want you to be able to tell me specifically what I've taught you. And as long as you can tell me that, then you can have communion. Because I don't want to be guilty of judgment being brought upon you. Yes. You know, I, I don't want to be an ally of that. And so I, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah, in that me too. And I think there are, you know, I've never had to do it, but there are situations where I would not feel comfortable commuting someone. Oh, yes. Um, yes. You know, if there is... Clear, Excommunicate. Yeah, and, and I don't even know that I, I, I would say I don't want them as part of our congregation or coming to church. No, we want them in church, but, um, well, for the most part, but... But um, th- there are, you know, unrepentant sin. If if I personally know that someone is not repenting of their sin, that would be a hard situation. Yeah, that's what technically what excommunication is. Yep. You're just saying that this person cannot have communion. Yeah. So there are there are circumstances where we even we as Apostolic Lutherans would say, no, um, you shouldn't have communion. You can't have communion. Yes. Um, but um, it's not going to be just generally based on an intellectual understanding. No, and it's not because you're a sinner. Right, and it's not because you're, quote-unquote, unworthy in the sense that you're not good enough for it. Right, because if you're willing to come and confess you're a sinner, then you can receive the supper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, closed communion um, is a um, fascinating... Uh, fascinating debate because i find myself very sympathetic to both sides of that interpretation right and i kind of find myself on both sides of it so it's just kind of interesting yeah like i say i do too i think it's an issue of of how really the biggest question becomes to me how how do i enforce it yeah and when someone comes up there um saying no this isn't for you (laughs) yeah because you know like i came into lorium so I wasn't at Lorium when all the people at Lorium were at Lorium. So how do I know what they actually think? Yeah. But I came in there to Lorium and I've got to deal with those people. Now I'm not sitting there, you know, taking names and saying, okay, well, you get the supper, you don't. You know, I know who you are and, and that sort of thing like that. 
you know, I'm communing these people, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't know in a number of cases. And what are they going to tell me? Well, I was confirmed in this church. Okay. Well, then, yeah, then I'm probably going to take their word for it. You were confirmed in this church. I think that Rod probably taught you from the catechism and taught you rightly. So it says right in our bulletin, you know, we put the blurb in there to understand you're partaking of the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we want you to understand that before you come to the altar. So I expect that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that I don't want to get Gestapo-esque, you know, and start interrogating everybody, you know, but by the same token, I don't want people to drink judgment upon themselves. Yeah, we would definitely want to prevent that. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the sacraments are... I would say very central to our faith as apostolic Lutherans in understanding that these are tangible gifts that God has given us in the supper. Um, I, I love, um, I find myself going and reading that Psalm um, and very often I'll even mention it, but just personally, when, after I partake of the Lord's Holy supper, um, that line taste and see that the Lord is good just yeah. just goes through my mind um because that's yeah. really what we get to do in the lord's supper we get to taste and see that the lord is good yeah so much of our faith is i mean basically all of it is about um believing that and trusting in that which we cannot see with our eyes we cannot um grasp it however there are instances where god gives us a, some tangibility and this is one of those instances where we we get to um, taste the bread, we get to taste the wine, we swallow it, um, and and it's connected to those words. And there is a a wonderful um, assurance, um, but I don't want to sell it short and say it's only assurance because there is a present, an active reality of the forgiveness of sins there as well. Yes, exactly. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, guys. Um, I think we're wrapping up to a close. Is there, Jay, is there anything like you'd like to say before we sign off? No, I was just thinking that, you know, you're in Elmer Ulinimi's turf over there. Now, I was remember Elmer told us very clearly how it was when he was teaching us the history of our movement. He talked about how many of the early converts were, were a long distance from a congregation, a church, that they could receive the sacrament of the altar. He says, and they'd load up their families in sleighs and travel through these many, many miles in wintry conditions just to get the supper because it was so important for them. And, and so, you know, I, I don't ever want to see us lose that fervor in our movement for understanding that, that depth of that sacrament, for that need of that, of the Lord's Supper. You know, I think, it, I think it's worthwhile to know the history of our movement and to realize how greatly they treasured that the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, Jamin, how about you? I don't really have anything uh, to, to add. I think uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, Jay, kind of going through all of this and, and hearing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming on, Jay. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. This was brought to you by the Eastern Mission. So a special thanks to the Eastern Mission for supporting us. 
of course, our goal is that we would like to become self-supported. So if you would like to join us in that endeavor, you can do so by clicking on the Patreon link in the description. You can also go to the Lorium Apostolic Lutheran Church's website if you'd like to hear more of Jay and his preaching, and to the seminary if you'd like to take advantage of those classes.